Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, Christmas in the First Testament, with a message entitled Christmas in Genesis. So let's turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 25 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Christmas is not and was never intended to be a celebration of innocence. Rather, it was intended as an honest look at the world of darkness and sin and of the human barbarity against other human beings, of injustice and alienation from the God who has made us. Christmas is the story of God's rescue plan for a drowning humanity. But Christmas doesn't begin or end with the baby in the manger. Rather, it begins with the story of a darkened human race. And furthermore, the birth of Jesus is not the end of the darkness. Rather, it is the light that burns in a dark place with the promise that one day the darkness will come to an end. Well, I say all of that so that we don't think that in some fashion, reading about the coming of the Chosen One from the First Testament is the story of the birth of the Christ child. It is true. Isaiah 9, 6 will say, For unto us a child is born. But there are not many First Testament pictures of the birth of the Messiah. But there are great many images of what the Messiah will do. Yesterday, I spoke briefly about the place to start. Genesis 3.15 promises the son of a woman who will bruise the head of the very serpent that led the man and the woman into ruin and death. At some point in the future, says Genesis, the deliverer of the curse from the fall will come. See, I left it there yesterday, but it is to be continued today. As we continue to read in Genesis, the answer to the human plight is not as straightforward as we might expect. Initially, the darkness of the human race only seems to gather speed with no deliverer in sight. We know that the woman has heard the promise, your offspring will crush the head of the serpent. And then in time, something happens that the human race had never experienced before. Eve, the first woman, becomes pregnant. And given that she has been told that the offspring of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent, well, we have to imagine what she might have been thinking. Would the curse of the fall come to an end with the birth of her child? Indeed, Eve gives birth and the child is a boy. And Genesis 4.1 records her saying, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. And we can almost hear the overwhelming optimism behind that statement. She is overwhelmed with a sense of hope. Perhaps the long night of sin and death will come to an end now. But of course, Eve and Adam were to be horribly disappointed. Instead of being the Messiah, that boy became the world's first murderer. Moreover, at the time when he was contemplating the murder of his brother, God himself intervened. Genesis 4, 6, and 7 says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You know, that phrase, crouching at the door, what's an image of a wild beast seeking to devour Cain? You know, some Bible scholars point out that this image is not unlike an image that's found in other ancient literature, that of a demon who might crouch at a door seeking to pounce on someone. But if it's a wild beast, we might think of the presence, well, of the serpent in the garden. Satan is at hand. He seeks to overcome Cain, but Cain is called upon to overcome this desire. 
Of course, he doesn't. Now, the jealousy and hatred for his brother simply overpowers him, and his brother's blood then cries out from the earth for justice. And justice will come, but in the interim, Cain finds some mercy from God. He's driven from the ever-growing family of Adam and Eve, but he finds one who will be his wife. And Cain begins a civilization of people who will make their way without the help of God. Eventually, two lines of people will develop. One line is determined to call on the Lord for mercy from the ravishing effects of the fall, and the other is just as determined to make their own way. They give themselves to technological advancements and believe that in time, they can develop a society with no need for God at all. And eventually, Genesis records the godly line is persecuted out of existence. I mean, all that's left is but one man, and his name is Noah. He still finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then God sends a flood and he destroys the majority of the human race. Noah and his family alone are left. And if we were to pause here in the Genesis account, we might reflect on what has become of the promise of the deliverer, who's going to save the human race from their madness and from the curse of the fall. You see, after the flood, all that has happened is a degree of patient grace from God, followed by a greater wickedness, finally resulting in global judgment and wrath. And after Noah, as the human family begins again, well, it doesn't take long to see that the madness of human rebellion against God simply continues. The human race settles in the land of Shinar, builds a city, and the heart of the city, it builds a tower that's dedicated to the greatness, not of God, but of humanity. You know, there may have been a flood in the past, but the human race will not bow the knee before God, who will judge them at any time. You know, the thing that strikes anyone when reading the story of the Tower of Babel are the two different descriptions of the event. The first comes in Genesis 11, verse 4, which says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. You know, the tower that reaches to heaven is a tower in which man has finally demonstrated that he can reach to heaven. He has no need for God to reach from heaven to earth. It's not grace he thinks he needs. Rather, the human race needs strength and human ingenuity. And so with the invention of better building materials, the project to reach the heavens has started. And then comes that second sentence. Now, that sentence is so important lest we think that this project is simply an ill-fated experiment. Genesis 11 verse 6 says, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. It's quite a thing to say, but it's but the beginning of what they will do. You know, my father-in-law used to say that he thought anything human beings could imagine eventually, give it enough time and commitment, well, they would accomplish what they had dreamt about in the past. Well, I think that to the most part, he was right. Human beings may be fallen, but they are still in the image of God. And their ability to dream and their ability to accomplish, well, how do we put it? Sky's the limit, we like to say. You know, it's hard to know what the planners of Babel had in mind. And in his infinite wisdom, God has not communicated the detailed blueprint of their plans. And furthermore, God came down and stopped them. He confused their speech and horribly divided the human race. And that is what we see today, divided humanity, 
competing nations, wars and rumors of wars, savagery in order to defend one nation from that of another. You know, we today are still the inheritors of what God did to the human race to stop us from pretending that we are gods. But again, we're left to wonder, yes, God will not allow the human race to ascend to the place where we overcome all the effects of the fall by our own strength. But what of the fall itself? What of the pandemic of human sin? Is there no cure? Is there no vaccination against that? Is human madness to continue? his disease and suffering and the eventual death of every human being to go on unabated. You know, in the immediate up to this present day, even after the coming of the Messiah, yeah, these things carry on unabated. And I'm reminded of Moses' words in Psalm 90, where it speaks of how God deals with wrecked and ruined and fallen human beings. You know, Psalm 90 verses 7 to 9 says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Indeed, in coming back to Genesis, this indeed is the description of the human race. Initially, human beings, even after the fall, lived over 900 years. And slowly and perhaps not so slowly, lifespans are reduced so that now, as Psalm 90 verse 10 to 11 says, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? That question does need a thoughtful answer. Who among all the human race meditates on the reality of a God who can simply snap his finger and the curse of death would come to an end? But that great snap of the eternal fingers is never given. One generation after another passes into death with a sigh of dismay. Today, the human population is over 7 billion people, and God is planning the death of all 7 billion of us. He will not stay his hand. Soon, all 7 billion of us will no longer exist, nor will we be remembered. A universal sigh that sounds like a groan goes up. Who considers this? Is your anger with our sins so great that this will occur? Apparently it does. Oh, how we need a Savior. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. The year is coming to a close, and I couldn't be more grateful for the encouragement, prayers, and support we received from so many gracious ministry friends across the country. All of Back to the Bible Canada ministries, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry in doubt, rely on the generosity of people like you. We teach the Bible with a purpose, that those who hear might receive and believe in our Lord Jesus. That's the intention of every program, every word. And your gifts make all that we do possible. Please consider supporting the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada as we strive to reach our December year-end goal of $376,000. Call 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. Genesis 12 begins the second section of the book. God calls a man named Abram. He says, leave your country. Go to the land I will choose. The Garden of Eden has been lost but I have a land for you. 
I will make you into great nation, and through you and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How we hear in this an echo we have heard earlier in this book. An offspring of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And now the offspring of Abraham will bless the earth. Again, when it seems hope is lost, suddenly it's reborn. But while the promise is given, its fulfillment seems like an impossibility. I mean, for one, Abraham goes to the land God has chosen for him, and it's not his land. Yeah, God may have told him that every place he places his foot down will be given to his offspring, but but how can that be? Is it not true that the Canaanites live in the land? They will not surrender their land to Abraham. But there's more. If Abraham's descendants are to be a great number, more than the sand of the shore and more than the stars of the heaven, how is it then that Abraham's wife is barren and they remain childless? The hopelessness of Abraham's condition is so great, nothing but a miracle would fulfill the promise. And in effect, that is the Christmas account. You see, in the Christmas account, the barrenness of Sarah's womb is replaced by the virgin who is Mary. You shall have a son, says the angel, and Mary responds, how can this be, since I am a virgin? In the same way, when the three men approach Sarah's tent and proclaim to her that at this time next year, Sarah will have a son, Abraham by then is almost a hundred and Sarah is 90. The time of childbearing, indeed, the time of sexual desire is past. It's a ludicrous proposition, to say the least, but that is the very nature of God's salvation. So that we would never think, even for a moment, that we have done this. God insists that his salvation would come about when all human possibilities have been thoroughly exhausted, and were it not for God, all would lead to death. I'm speaking these words in the days of a global pandemic. Various jurisdictions will vary, but where I live, I think that gathering in homes to celebrate Christmas is going to be forbidden of us this year. Unless we get our noses too out of joint as to how the government can be so cruel to demand such things of us, let's remember that a disease stalks the land and at risk are the lives of many people, especially the elderly and those who have some form of existing health condition. Meeting together causes the disease to continue to spread, causing sickness and death and the possibility of economic depression. And so is Christmas being canceled? Well, now, I guess that all depends on what you mean by Christmas, doesn't it? If Christmas is a feeling and the gathering together of families for feasting and presents and enjoyment of company, then I suppose it might just be canceled. But if Christmas is the story of the promise of grace and hope in the midst of overwhelmingly dark times, well, then I must say such times are the times when Christmas actually flourishes. It flourishes when all hope, apart from the divine promise, fails us. And so eventually in our Genesis account, God does intervene and Sarah gives birth to a son. They name him Isaac, which means laughter. You know, the incredulous laughter of Abraham and Sarah turns into the laughter of overwhelming joy as they hold a boy in their hands. And of course, that's not the end of the story. It's not, well, now Abraham and Sarah had a son, and then God gave them the promised land, and then, you know, all the earth was blessed through that boy and his descendants. And, might I add, the story of the birth of Jesus is not that kind of a story either. It doesn't say, look, now light has entered into a world of darkness, and from now on, everything is filled with light where there was once darkness. You know, John's very explicit about this in John 3, verse 19. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
The world didn't beat a path to the Messiah's door. Indeed, as Isaiah would remind us, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering, one so abused that he became one from whom men hide their faces. Well, let's get back to the story of Abraham. Isaac is growing up, and then comes that fateful moment. Genesis 22, 1 and 2 says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. You know, I'm amazed at how badly we've sometimes told the story of Abraham journeying up to Mount Moriah and building an altar and then binding his son there and then standing over him with a knife, ready to sacrifice his son on that altar. You see, often that story is told as a moral story. You know, God, we're told, should be the most important thing to us. Are we ready, that's what we ask, to sacrifice everything for God? Well, that's not the lesson. Instead, the lesson is a very different one. You know, for starters, the idea of sacrificing one's child on the altar is an idea that's abhorrent in the First Testament. Deuteronomy 18 verse 10 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. I mean, such a thing was condemned in the Bible. And furthermore, we do well to remember how the New Testament book of Hebrews understands this account. In Hebrews 11, 7 to 19, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And that's the story of Abraham's faith. Even if he slays his son, the promise of God can't fail. God promised that the promise he made to Abraham would be fulfilled in Isaac. No matter what happened on Mount Moriah, it is through Isaac that the blessing to the whole world would come. And so eventually it was through Isaac that the Messiah would enter the world. Isaac then is a looking forward to the fulfillment of promise of the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent and end the curse of the fall. And so Abraham took his only son Isaac and bound him to the altar. And then he reached out his hand and took hold of the knife that he had brought. And as he stood poised to drive the dagger into his son, an angel of the Lord called out to him, Abraham, do not harm the boy. And as Abraham lifted up his eyes, he saw a ram caught in the thicket. He unbound his son and went and took the ram and slaughtered the ram in the place of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. You know, it's a funny thing about sacrifices. Long before a tabernacle was built and long before the book of Leviticus was written, which specifically outlined how sacrifices were to be performed, sacrifices were already going on. Indeed, it was a reality of a sacrifice that so enraged Cain against his brother. Sacrifices are as old as the human race, and the practice of sacrificing is found in every single human culture. You know, there's something built into the human psyche that tells us that something needs to die in order for us to live. You know, on the one hand, the explanation is a, you know, a simple matter of fact. Something needs to die for us to eat. And the fact is that we encounter this every single day of our lives. But we also know that something needs to be sacrificed to make it possible for us to live spiritually. Since the fall, we know that we're subject to death, and we desperately don't want to die. We want to live. But how shall we live now that we're under the curse of God? 
a rebellion against the Creator, has made the Creator our enemy, and woe be to us. Something, someone needs to take our place. And there some 4,000 years ago now, as Abraham stood poised with a knife over the head of his son, came a voice from heaven. God has provided a substitute to be slain so that Isaac could live and so that the blessing of God might actually come to the human race. See, all Christians understand that this is a type or a pattern for what was to follow. In a sense, Isaac represents us all. Yeah, he's the child of promise, but he's also a member of the human race. He's sinful and he's fallen. And the life that Isaac would lead would leave us without a doubt. He's not the Messiah. His sins were many. His weak leadership led to major fissures in his family. He simply couldn't control his own sons. How then can he lead the way to bring blessings to the world? Well, he can't. And so Isaac is the one who represents all of us. He's bound to the altar as are we. The knife that hovers above him is the knife Moses described in Psalm 90. We end our years with a sigh. We come to an end at the anger of God. Sin always goes with death. We need a substitute, one who would take our place. See, the story of Christmas is so much more than a babe in a manger engendering sweet emotions. It's the story that a substitute has been found, one who will be bound to the altar in our place. That's Genesis, and that's the real meaning of Christmas. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you this. You know, I, I find it interesting, and maybe there's some some meaning to it, but the proximity between the altar where Isaac was bound and where Christ was crucified. Yeah, it wasn't exactly the same place. We need to say that the place where Isaac was bound is um, actually the place where Solomon later built the temple. So it is on that very place that sacrifices and offerings were given. And that's appropriate because, as we know, that uh, a ram needs to be provided as a symbol that sin needs to be dealt with. But ultimately, Jesus did go to that temple, and it was there in that temple that the rulers of Israel condemned him and dragged him outside of the city walls. Um, So we can say that Jesus was crucified very close to that place, but it's very important for us to remember the connection between the, the sacrifice of Isaac, the building of the temple, and the crucifixion of Jesus. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Christmas in the First Testament, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada, wishing you all the joy, hope, and wonder of the season. While the trees go up, lights are hung, and the house smells of delicious baked goods, many of us find ourselves celebrating apart from our families this year. This Christmas season may look and even feel different, but nothing can diminish the message of hope that Christ brings. The coming of Jesus was and is the arrival of ultimate hope in a world that has lost its hope. It's why we can genuinely say Merry Christmas. We're so thankful for our Back to the Bible Canada family. Your partnership makes this ministry possible. 
To support these Bible teaching efforts this month, please call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.